0: Louis and um, it's a lion, the witch and the wardrobe. Um, Don't panic, later we'll be reading from the book of Nehemiah. Um, But I um, wanted to start with a question. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, said Mr. Beaver. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Thank you, Sean. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is known as the Great Lion, the creator and one true king of the world of Narnia, and generally a representation of all that is good. As the one true king, all of Narnia's inhabitants have faith in him and obey him absolutely. I have a certain feeling about Aslan. Whenever I've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or have watched the movie, I feel comforted whenever Aslan shows up. And... um, I always feel that where he is, he's going to right all the wrongs. And if I ever get another dog, I'm going to probably name him Aslan. (laughs) Yet, even with such reassurance, I often feel like Susan in the book, asking myself the same question about God Is he safe or is he good? Imagine if we all wore AZS name tags that either said, hello, I am not safe, or hello, I'm good. Which person would you want to meet? You'd really want someone who is safe and good to be your leader, right? Or to be part of your congregation. So I have thought about this to take it one step further in my own life, which is, is God safe or is he good? And if I follow him, is there some sort of guaranteed outcome that things will be good and I'll be safe? I chose this concept to talk about today because this is a theme that runs throughout scripture, and we read over and over again about the goodness of God and that those who run to him, to his name, will be safe. But is God really safe? And is that who he really is? And is that what we should be thinking about when we think about serving him? Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't felt really safe for a long time. And um, when I add up the events that have come into my life without warning, the ones that have been really fear-producing that I've never been able to depend upon how they're going to turn out, I haven't been able to grab a hold of the idea that life, even with God, is always safe. It's an uncomfortable way to live, and I have a feeling that you live this way sometimes too. I know I'm in good company when I think about God being safe or God being good, because the people of Nehemiah's time wrestled with the same thing, and um, I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah, um, and uh, turn to the first chapter. We're not going to read all of the first nine chapters, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a summation. So, in the first chapter, Nehemiah asks for a report on how the Jews who survived the exile are doing. Um, perhaps what he hoped to hear was that they were safe, that life was good for them now and that he would have a sense of relief about that. But instead, in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, in verse 3, we read, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. This is not good news. In verse 4... And Nehemiah has what some of us can relate to as being sort of an emotional breakdown. He sits down and weeps and mourns for days, and he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. But listen to what he prays: "O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep His commandments." Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. And then in verse 11, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So when Nehemiah prayed this prayer, what do you think he had in mind as to what kind of God he was praying to? Um, Obviously, the people of Israel had not been safe. Uh, Their city, the beloved Jerusalem, was not safe. Its walls were broken down, although God had promised the Israelites to bring them to a place that was good. Well... That place no longer looked too good. So I'm thinking that probably some of the people in this room have had sort of like a post-exile experience at one time or another in your life as well. And in fact, you may be experiencing one right now. Um, You depended upon God's nature that he would keep you from harm. And instead, you're right in the middle of it, and you're feeling pretty bruised. You might be pondering deep within yourself without admitting that to anyone else around you, and you come to services and you smile and you say, I'm fine, and you're really not. And sometimes you might be tempted to think, what's so different about my life being a believer than anybody else's life? So... Let's keep looking at Nehemiah. Um, Turn to Nehemiah 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And what follows after this, and I loved reading this, although it's a little cumbersome, um, in verses 5 all the way to verse 73 is a listing of the returned exiles. And this list goes on and on, and you probably would never name your children half of those names that are there. Um, But in verse 6, it says, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to this town. And um, when I read the list of all these people's names, and you might want an exercise for the afternoon, um, go ahead and read all of them. I have to tell you what, I was comforted when I read all those names. I was relieved. Um, These were the people who survived. And in the end of Chapter 7, we read, that the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. So those who had been exiled came to a place where the walls were rebuilt, and they lived in their towns. That's really good. They came home. Now they were nice and safe, right? Back in the land. But first, they had to experience extreme loss and devastation. So, you know, I think about what happens when we feel like life is against us. Um, You might experience, you have, some of you, experienced the death of a beloved spouse, you might have a wayward child. You might have lost your job, found a job, lost a job, found a job. You might not like the job you have. You might be thinking about moving to a foreign land. You break your arm, you break your finger, and you're a guitar player like Susan Moore. You fail a test. You can't make your checkbook balance. Um, um, You get cancer out of no place. At those times, do you feel like God is safe, or is God good? Because surely none of these situations feel safe, and even then, it's hard to trust in the goodness of God at those times. So then, is there any help for us? And when we look at Nehemiah and what the people did after the walls of Jerusalem were built... Again, in chapter 8, we read at verse 1, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Hmm. They didn't run to Trader Joe's, you know, to get food or um, return library books or anything like that, but we read that the book of the law was read from early morning until midday in such a way that the people understood clearly what was being read. And after this reading, suddenly the people start to do even more. They celebrate the Feast of Booths, which further confirmed their sense of community as the people of God. They, um, in Chapter 9, they gather together to confess their sins, Then they were told to bless the Lord who had been with them from everlasting to everlasting, and these people had been through hell. And yet now they're told to live in little booths, repent, put on sackcloth and ashes, and remember the goodness of God. Has this been your reaction at times when God has delivered you? Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm so weary by the time an answer to prayer comes and a time of deliverance comes, then I'm just as happy to celebrate by going to the movies or, you know, eating all kinds of ice cream or buying a new iPad. Um, But sackcloth and ashes and communal praise are often pretty far from our first response to God's deliverance. But what happens in chapter 9 when the people are gathered to confess their sins is that we begin to see a revealing of the true identity of God. And this is what's important. And we're able to ask ourselves in this story of the deliverance that God gave them is serving God safe? Or is it a unique experience to, ex- to know his goodness? So in chapter 9, it was like a rehearsal of history, and we read how Abraham was brought out of... Abram was brought out of Ur and sent to a land he didn't know. Safe? Not safe. What happens in the land? There are other people there. There are enemies, the Hittites, Canaanites. What has to happen in order for Abraham to inherit the land? Battles, wars, safe? The affliction of the Israelites in Egypt... Safe? The ten plagues. Safe? Not for the Egyptians. The Israelites were brought to the Red Sea. Safe? How safe could they have felt to stand at the edge of the sea with their families, their little ones? They're schlepping this this unbaked bread, and um, the Egyptians are right coming after them. They're led by a pillar of fire. Safe? Um, they didn't know where they were going, and at times they couldn't even see where they were going. Um, Moses goes up, God comes down on Mount Sinai. We're given stone commandments with a bunch of rules that no one can follow. Safe? Bread from heaven. Water from a rock. But depending upon heaven and a rock for your sustenance seems very unreliable, or it would be to me. So when I look at these verses from the standpoint of safe for good, everything I read show the precarious nature of their situation. And many times, you know, we think about God's provision for us and we should, but I want you to think about the situations in your lives before the provision was given and how you must have felt. And this is how these people felt. Were the same. I read these verses, and I feel their fear. Um, I feel their heart's failing them because I've had my heart fail me. Um, They were reluctant to trust, um, and they didn't always get the outcome that they hoped for. After all, how safe is it to travel without a GPS? You know, you... How safe is it to live in a desert without provisions? How safe is it to go through, you know, a great sea with people at your feet, and you don't have a boat, and you can't even swim? You get a bunch of rules from this mountain that no one can follow, and yet you're told, hey, everybody, we're gathered here today to bless God, to declare that he's the maker of heaven and earth, that he preserves his people, and not only should we worship him, but even the host of heaven worships him. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm hanging on a thread to believe in the goodness of God when I experience one unalterable life experience after another. I think that we here at AZS can relate to this, that in the last several months when um, we knew that Rabbi Joshua and Monique were going to leave, I tell you that it was very hard for me Um, I really sobbed over this. Um, I came here to L.A., and right away I knew I was going to become part of AZS. And so the community here and the leadership here, um, that's why I came to AZS. I began to love Joshua and Monique, and then they were gone. So we're experiencing a time of uncertainty here at AZS, and um, and we haven't yet rebuilt the walls of the congregation, not fully. And yet we are told in Scripture to identify with the God who shows us over and over again that he is good. So I want to ask us, and I'll close with this, how are we going to become an identifying mark of his goodness here in L.A. as a community. I think that our answer is the same as that which comes a little further down in verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you do not forsake your people. And I think that that is what we need to remember, that he has not forsaken us, no matter what the situations look like. And if we've accepted him, if we have accepted Yeshua into our lives, the nature of his salvation informs us that God is much more good than we could ever believe. The way to get through a deep sea is to stand still at the water's edge and remember that God is a really dependable lifeguard. The way to regard the plagues and diseases that seem to come out of nowhere is to remember his ability to deliver. The way to regard your own sin when you recognize that you can't fully keep even one of God's laws is to remember his readiness to stand in the gap for us and that he forgives us. He is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that is who he is. It is good. He is good and ready to save. And Ahavatsian, I really challenge us to look to him and to his word because that is where we will find him rather than to our own ability, our own cleverness, our own meetings, our own financial reports to deliver us. And as for who we are, we've not only been created in God's image, but we've been recreated to bear the identity of our king. What guarantee do we have of a positive outcome if we follow him? Not success, but the certainty of a transformed character and life through identifying with the identity of Yeshua. A saved people can affect more good than just settling to be a safe people. To end with the other book of wisdom, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Mr. Beaver says to the children... Who, if you've read The Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe, which you should go home and read this afternoon, he says to them, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Thank you. <coughs>